Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to the ASIAL Security Insider podcast. And today we are talking about biometrics and facial recognition. And we have joining us Jordan Cullis, Director of Sales and Pre-Sales for APAC at Milestone, and Fraser Larkham. Fraser has been a, uh, a subject matter expert in the industry for many years now, has right across the facial recognition and biometric side of things, and has also recently joined the Milestone team. Fraser, welcome. Thank you, John. Nice Jordan, you. welcome. Thanks, John. Thanks for having us. Now, Fraser, maybe you can explain a bit more about your role and how you fit into the picture here because you've worked across a range of things and you bring some different skills to Milestone. Tell us a little bit about what you're doing to kick us off. Uh, so what we're doing here with Milestone now with myself here is to try and expand video surveillance outside of just typical surveillance. Video is being utilised in many different ways nowadays, especially with um, metadata, facial recognition, you say biometrics as a whole. So with my background in IT and in as you said, a subject matter expert in uh, biometrics um, and analytics, I guess we're trying to help customers expand their systems. If you think of it doing things like uh, stock availability and automatically or automating things to say, yep, need to send off now, get um, XYZ back on the shelves, or even traffic flow, you know, where traffic's suddenly building up on a highway, can we divert people around? Yep. And so the thing that's got us talking about facial recognition and biometrics is there's obviously been some talk most recently, but also for the last decade or two, about the use of biometrics. What are they? How do they work? What does facial recognition do? There's a little bit of concern amongst the public about people storing biometric data and all the rest of it. So we're going to try and address a number of these subjects today. The first one I want to sort of have a look at is it appears that there's a great deal of fear around the use of biometrics from a lack of understanding regarding how biometrics work. Um, and in the case of facial recognition, for example, if we take the recent Choice article that came out in which we see statements like, you know, um, the use of this developing technology which captures and stores unique biometric information such as facial features, in inverted commas, known as a face print, I mean, let's talk a little bit about how facial recognition systems work, for starters, because they don't store a face print, do they? No, they store a 512 floating point number, I mean, which is huge. It's not a face print. Yep. So it shouldn't be much of a stretch for you, but just pretend for a moment I'm really stupid, right? I think everyone in the room is going to be comfortable with this assumption. Uh, break that down for me. Explain to the layperson what that actually means. Uh, that's actually a difficult question, actually, but if you're fair. Uh, look, facial recognition as a whole used to be about images or pieces on the face, and you'll see every single time somebody brings up a, an article in the media about face recognition, they always have this sort of map around the face. doesn't work like that anymore. There's a whole thing called deep learning which is being trained on faces to say, this is a face, this is a face, this is a face. No, it's not. That's what it's doing. And then basically every single face going through will generate a number. And as I said, this is a 512 floating point number long. It's a huge number. And we talk also about like percentages of people. How accurate is it? 98%, you know, 57%, 67% chance of it being John. That's actually not true. Those numbers are pretty much made up. Right. Because what you're looking at is a distance between numbers. Mm -hmm. So if a person walks in, it looks at the face, it maps the face, it gives it a 512 floating point number, then what it's looking at is in a database of known individuals, and this is the point, it's not storing, it doesn't know who that person is, it's only matching to a database of known individuals, and it goes, yep, it's 
that number is this distance away from that. That's as close as we can be. We think that's a match. But if you say a database of known individuals, then does that mean that their face faces captures that they have been kept on file or just mathematical numbers that have been kept on file? A bit of both. Most facial recognition companies will keep a photograph, a physical photograph of a person. And we're talking normally, I mean, in reality here, you're talking about thieves or people that are violent to staff or, you know, in the case of the choice that came out, you know, you're, you're looking at people who are known individuals who they don't want in their stores anymore for particular reasons. Right. Most facial recognition companies will keep a, a an image of that on file because it's the same as having the face up on a wall. And if you can remember the old days, and you know, I think we're all pretty much old enough here to remember those days of walking into, in fact, you still can, you walk into a security guard office and there's all these pictures up on the wall of faces that people have known people they don't want in the building. The difference with this is it's just putting that into a computer and saying these are the people we don't know, rather than security guard actually then has to remember them all. Uh, but I, that I, is yeah. still a 512 point number, um, floating point number sitting there, and it can just be a 512 point floating number with no image attached if you wish it to be. And I, yeah, that's a lot more reliable than I remember back of going back a million years when I used to work in security. I won't name the retailer for fear of embarrassing them, but we had an office out the back and you would walk in and there would literally be a wall full of photos right next door to a poster from Cobra with Sylvester Stallone standing there with the tagline, crime is the disease and I'm the cure. Yep. <laughs> this, is, yeah. I like. yeah. this, this is their, uh, their loss prevention room. It was fantastic. Yeah, just to jump in on that, I mean, you know, we work with a lot of uh, retailers around the country and the world, and uh, the primary use for, uh, for for facial recognition in all of those retailers is the same. It is around loss prevention. Yep. And what what we see is, uh, I guess, two different elements to that. One, these organisations need to ensure that they're you know protecting their assets. Uh, but second to that, there is a real concern. I mean, when we see uh, you know losses and the the thieves that are realistically um, you know embarking on, on on taking these goods it does pose a risk to the to the public as well to the other patrons in those in those environments so there is a, a number of benefits that come along with that I guess to, the, the important message here is that that facial rec data that 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 is uh, being captured and only stored in the cases of those either a violent offenders or B uh, you know crooks that are looking to take advantage is really uh, limited to to that environment. Yep. It's not something that we see these organisations looking for uh, enormous, um, you know, enormous data for other purposes or any of those things. And as Fraser was just talking about, you know, in the case of biometric, it's very specifically measuring points between numbers. In the case of other things, it's it's just simply metadata storage, and the use cases for that metadata extends well and beyond uh, well and beyond the standard security that. Uh, people are, are, you know, associating with this biometric data. So again, let's go back a step just for people who may be listening to this out of interest that aren't from the security industry. And perhaps, Jordan, you can explain a little bit about, and Fraser, feel free to chime in, what do you mean by metadata? So metadata is the data behind the video. So in a lot of, in a lot of environments, the video is used purely for security purposes. It's to protect things and people. Uh, yep. th th there's not much more to it. Uh, we do use that for other applications uh, in terms of crowd control, in terms of traffic control, in terms of um, directional flow or heat mapping to understand where um, you know people tend to walk when they walk into a centre or something along those lines. But those 
Those really are, are very interesting use cases. What it's really doing is storing, again, a bunch of numbers behind the data. And in some cases, they don't bother even storing the video. We're not too interested in what's happening from a, from a you know, this person uh, was walking with two kids in a handbag. That's not relevant. What's relevant is they walked into the center and turned left. They then followed a path that looks like this. Now, there's lots of different opportunities that come from that for all sorts of uh, different rationale. Do we need to have uh, traffic control people there to manage crowds? Do we need to, uh, in the case of, for example, a, a shopping centre, um, look at, you know, how would that impact rental? Uh, you know, is there a is there a, a way of understanding what, is a high or prime location versus a non-prime location. And there's many, many thousands of different use cases like this, which are really not specific to um, people independently. It's more about the general knowledge that we gain from this metadata that sits behind. Now, again, going back to the biometrics, we're, we're talking about something that's uh, a very specific use case in loss prevention versus uh, in, in the case like this, we're talking about metadata uh, storage, which gives us knowledge about what are the behaviours that we're seeing, what are the trends that we see, those different types of things, which have, they're faceless, right? Yeah. They, they, they truly are not relevant to the individual, more the mass. Yeah. And I think the, the, the other thing that's really important for me at least to point out with a lot of this stuff is... I don't really understand the hype that's being made here around, you know, oh, they're, they're capturing images or whatever it may be. I mean, the average person puts super high quality resolution images of themselves online by the dozens all day, every day on social media. And I mean, if you look at most of the cameras and most of the systems out there, the cameras are set fairly high. They're taking the image from an oblique angle. It's not the world's most flattering image in the first place, as opposed to the tons of, you know, selfies that people are taking and posting all day, every day. What's what's the issue here, for me at least anyway? It seems to be more that people think that there's some sort of minority report and nefarious use of biometrics going on where we're going to capture your face and then match that to your credit card information and then figure out what your buying habits are and start selling that data or, or you know, pumping ads for the latest Bulgari perfume to you. I mean, like Fraser. A, like a loyalty card, you mean? Yeah, I mean, exactly. the whole thing is you've got a loyalty card for most of these stores. They know who you are, where you are. You've signed up and ticked the box. It is really very different to that and most of the time if you think of how it's being portrayed facial recognition as a whole how it's being portrayed is we'll pick you up in a crowd of people yeah you're not gonna all right you need to build uh if you're doing proper face recognition where you're trying to detect a particular person in a crowd it's not a crowd you look at choke points you look at entrances you look at areas where they're going to be a smaller possible area that you can capture a face as, as good quality as you can but again the reality most of the customers that were doing facial recognition had a known amount of people in the database. That amount of people varied from about 10 people to 50 people at a max, other than one example, I guess, which is South Australian Gaming, who did it legitimately wanting to help um, people who've got a gambling problem from going and entering. That's yep. slightly different. But again, it's a known database of people through an area. You're not going to look at a stadium and just scan across the whole stadium and say, oh, there's Fraser, there's John, there's you know, Jordan. You're not going to see that. It's never going to happen. Yeah. Well, it's also probably not going to be very interesting. I don't really know why anyone would want to find me in a crowd. 
Well, I think the people that said to me, and recently after the article, I had a number of people come and talk to me about, oh, they're worried about reverse engineering it. That means that uh, these shops will be able to go in and open my phone up and see what's in my phone. It's never going to happen. Well, that's a really good point. I want to stick on that for a second because one of the things that was alluded to in the Choice article, and not just the Choice article, this is a, a common theme that appears in some of this stuff, is, and we touched on it before, they capture my face print as if your face print is some magical thing that allows once I've got it, I can use it to hack your iPhone and I can use it to hack your social media yep. accounts and all this. It's crap. Absolutely. There's no such thing as a face print. No, there isn't. And it's it's uh, it's a great term used by, by them, like fingerprint, right? The yep. reality here, as I said before, this is a very long number, okay? Yep. You can't reverse engineer that to match your face. It just, it just can't be done. Every facial recognition company also their number will be different to each other's. So it's yeah. not like you can reverse engineer and get it. You, no, you just can't do it. You can't recreate that face from it. Yeah, and that's an important point that you just raised. And maybe, Jordan, you can talk a little bit about this if you feel like it. But every single system has its own proprietary way uh, of capturing and utilizing face data and Milestone is going to be different to another product which is going to be different to another product so there's there's no one single face print that you can use that magically allows you as far as I understand it to operate across all systems is that the case? Yeah look it's a really great point I guess it's more about the way we all read the data Yep. Right, so the data means something to, to, to Milestone differently to it does to somebody else. Now, the interesting part about this topic is probably more around <coughs> the, the general um, use of technology. Yep. Now, now the uh, – sorry about that. Um, the, the I'll just get you to push that mic in a little bit closer. Sure, it. sorry about that. Um, so the really interesting uh, – emergence over the past few years has been something we call at Milestone the Copenhagen, Copenhagen letter uh, and responsible use of technology. And uh, as technology has grown, we've seen over the years an enormous amount of mistrust and, and definitely in some organisations misuse. And when we look around the world, we've got very obvious um, geographical regions that have probably been in the media more than others that have uh, potentially misused that, that technology or potentially had uh, negative impacts. And we, we've seen some of those being banned. Now, the Copenhagen letter and responsible use of technology is very much around us understanding uh, partnerships, very much like the ones that Fraser's talking about now, where different facial recognition companies, different metadata-based businesses, understanding what is the primary use and goal and how does this help people, as opposed yep. to how does it help an organisation profile a person. Now... We, we do an enormous amount of work right down to human rights violations, um, you know, new policies around those human rights violations. But uh, when, when we do integrations with third parties, those are vetted, those are understood, and the intent of those is always uh, outlined when those integrations are taking place and when the promotion of them is taking place. Uh, something in addition, I guess, to, to talk about in that area is uh, it's on all of us. Now, in the same way as uh, cybersecurity uh, is the responsibility of all of the chains or, uh, you know, links in the chain getting that through to an end user, uh, that responsible use of technology is also the responsibility of everybody deploying that out into an environment. So, as an example, we can set 
uh, a precedent. We can set an expectation. We can do the vetting. What it requires, though, is everybody having an understanding of what our responsibility to the public is, yep. understanding what our responsibility to the individual uh, that that feels that that concern that you're talking about here, uh, that we're not here to take advantage of any of that. We're here to ensure a responsible deployment, to ensure that uh, when we're when, for example, we're we're working with facial recognition, we're doing it in a way that remains primarily faceless to the to the you know uh, general public to the people who are always doing the right things but also protecting them through the use of that technology to ensure that uh, people like loss prevention agencies or police have the ability to hone in on persons of interest who are probably doing the wrong thing uh, and we obviously it's really all about uh, protecting both assets and people and by people we mean the public around these volatile environments yeah and i think a really important point that we probably need to discuss while we're on this topic of responsibility and the responsibility of corporations and also end users is the challenges that were built into biometrics not just facial recognition all biometrics but primarily facial recognition a couple of years ago where there were accidentally inbuilt biases in some of the facial recognition systems where admittedly they didn't work as well or as accurately as they could have with some ethnic minority groups. They weren't as accurate with people whose skin tones were those of colour versus Caucasian uh, and so on. But my understanding is whilst we didn't know that those biases were there and they were there, they've now been addressed and that's not so much the situation anymore, Fraser? It's not as bad as it used to be. But every single facial recognition company started with exactly the same database, which was the Microsoft Celebrity database because it was freely available out on the web. Yep. The trouble is, is most celebrities in America are primarily white and Mostly men, okay? So yep. women were being missed out and obviously people who weren't white uh, were also not being as, as well tracked. Now, I would state that that has changed dramatically over the past number of years. However, access to that data is hard. So it is still going to be slightly biased. I'm not going to lie on that one. It is yep. still slightly going to be biased. But people in regions, so for instance, if an Australian company is doing a product, what they'll be looking at is trying to include more people, uh, more Aboriginal, say, say here, or more Maoris, say, to make their data set more acceptable to the region they're in. Yeah, and I guess where we run into issues with that, and whilst that is being addressed, it's worth talking about, there's two parts to this. Firstly, if there are inbuilt biases in it, this is a broader subject around the use of artificial intelligence in general. It's not so much of an issue in security as I understand it, because we're not trying to decide who gets a scholarship to a school that could be affected by inbuilt bias, which might predicate um, that males of white Caucasian origin are more likely to get the scholarship because of the inbuilt bias in the AI. We're not trying to determine who gets immigration status into a country or whatever it may be. But where it can be an issue, to my understanding, is if our organisation is using that facial recognition system for the purpose of time and attendance, for you know people clocking into and out of a workplace and the system's not properly recognizing people of you know certain ethnic origins or whatever which could affect their pay packet that would be an issue but it's been addressed is that the case it's definitely being addressed and actually you bring up a really good point by the way about access control in particular about time and attendance 
what you're doing there is presenting a face at a camera that's so close to you. You've got so much of an image inside the frame. Actually, the bias almost goes away. Yeah. Because you've got such a good quality image because they're quite close to it. It's not the same as when you're doing a security or surveillance style where it would be slightly more biased against it. However, in stating that, every facial recognition company should be stating their product is an aid to security, if that's what it's being sold as, not a replacement. You should never go along and just arrest somebody because the facial recognition product says it's them. Yeah. All right? You should, you've got your own eyes. At the end of the day, it's an aid to say, hey, look, this could be somebody. Right? Yeah. But you know, when it comes to access control, very different again because, again, you're getting a better, higher quality image and normally against a higher quality matching product because you're saying, let's say access control, I will take a photo of you right up close. I'm then having an image of you right up close. The accuracies then go through the roof. And this is where I guess it comes back to the piece that you were talking about, Jordan, with responsibility and you know ethical use and all the rest of it. Whenever an organisation is putting in a measure like iris recognition, fingerprint recognition, facial recognition, whatever it may be, I imagine it's on the organisation to notify the staff, this is what we're using, this is why we're using it, these are the reasons that we're using it, this is how we're storing it, this is for how long we're storing it, so that people don't... The, the problem I see is in a vacuum where there's an absence of information, people will make stuff up in their own mind and think, oh, they're doing all these nefarious things. Yeah, look, all of the above. Um, it, it's a very interesting topic. And the reason it's so interesting is uh, we're, we're looking at this in isolation. We're not looking at it as a part of a bigger picture. If we look at uh, things like, um, you know, facial recognition or biometrics in general, if we're looking at other metadata uh, uses, you know, around the world we do incredible things for different, types of industries in in medical environments we provide uh, ways of uh, different uh, personnel being involved in uh, medical procedures we provide uh, nurses with biometric data not just around uh, you know obviously general health data but comfort levels and things like that remotely so they can manage more star, uh, more patients at once. We we have an enormous amount of amazing use cases that this data is actually used for. In the case very specifically of security, I think we've outlined quite clearly what that is, is typically used for. Um, and, and I guess more importantly, all of these environments, um, you know, being very public in nature, you know, there is a huge amount of ongoing concern as the world changes that uh, these organisations need to protect the, the patrons uh, of yeah. that organisation. It's not simply a case anymore of it's okay, we'll send one security guard around a place, uh, a huge shopping centre and hope that it's okay. There are literally tens of thousands of people at times in these centres and we need to have ways uh, of understanding where the, where the largest threats are coming from, where persons of interest may actually be um, you know, threatening to that public uh, and all of these different types of things. But at the same time, I, I think having an awareness of that usage is really important. And this is exactly what we're talking about here. We're talking about identifying and highlighting to, to the general public and the people with these concerns that the use case is very limited to the security of those place or those environments, not specifically looking for, for um, you know, all individuals. Generally speaking, uh, me, like you, like Fraser, are not of 
much interest to, to, to the people who are operating these systems. It's very specifically those people who we know are, are doing the wrong thing that we're trying to keep the rest of the public safe from. Yep. And I guess the question that comes out of that is that people will always say, well, with any technology, there's an inherent potential for abuse and misuse. And this is one of the things that was raised in that Choice article where they stated nearly two-thirds of respondents that they interviewed, or 65%, were concerned about stores using technology such as facial recognition, in inverted commas, to create profiles of customers that could cause them harm. How? Yeah, I'm a bit concerned by that one. There's no real harm you can cause by this. And in fact, again, facial recognition products don't know every single person. And they don't store the data. The only data they're actually really storing is the data of the information that, that they are trying to protect themselves from. Yeah. That's it. The saved people. Yeah. Uh, that's really it. So, hey, this guy is a problem. Yeah. Uh, Mr. John Bigelow has been stealing from everywhere. We're yep. going to save his face. And the next time he walks into any one of these connected centres will be able to send security to validate and, uh, and, and monitor the situation. Yeah, to my understanding, it's not like you're uh, – and this is something perhaps you can touch on, Fraser, is the one-as-to-one as opposed to one-as-to-many concept. But it's not like – let's say I walk into sexy land. It's not like they're going to take my image and somehow magically match it to all of my data that exists on the internet no. and then start bombarding my house where my wife goes and opens all of the mail going, why are you getting all this stuff from sexy land all of a sudden? It, I mean, it doesn't happen. It can't happen that way. No, it doesn't happen. It definitely can't happen that way. I think that the the problem is that the perception of facial recognition is what people are seeing in other areas. So, for instance, I'm opening my phone with my face. That's a one-to-one match, and I yep. get that, okay? But also the uh, social media sites who were popping up people's faces and saying, oh, this is Fraser, this is John, this is... in the, in the, the, That is what they think is what facial recognition software is doing in the security world, it's not, okay? That's on social media because the social media sites actually do know who you are, right? And they've got every information on you. Now, that's very different to what facial recognition is in the security industry by a long way. None of these facial recognition companies know anybody at all. The data that's stored is stored by the company using it. And like Jordan's already said, it's the data of the people who they know they want to stop coming into their store, whether that be for, you know... Um, the fact of theft or whether it be for the fact of safety. And yep. safety's becoming a big one. I mean, I know of a retailer here at the moment who's literally just gone out, purchased a lot of duress products to s- because their customers are being abused and being basically violently treated against. Uh, so they're having to buy a product to press a button to say, hey, we're in trouble. Yeah. And when you've got somebody buying like 5,000 of these things to help protect, that's all this is about as well. It's protection. And also, just from a, a practical point of view, something else I think we need to point out is most people probably don't realise the immense storage that would be required to try and retain the data of tens of thousands of people coming through a retailer or an environment every hour is just physically ridiculous and not really financially feasible at the moment. So anyway, um, moving back to you for a second, Jordan. What responsibilities do the developers and distributors of these technologies have both from an ethical, practical and human rights point of view? And you kind of touched on this earlier. Yeah, so look, companies like Milestone, we, we, we work to a lot of standards. Um, in Europe, there's a standard called GDPR, which is a general um, data protection policy, basically, which, which protects us, uh, well, people from 
organizations like ours from storing data about them. Uh, we, we also uh, have then beyond that lots of ISO standards which also cover these, uh, these types of data protection um, you know, laws. And more importantly, I think when we, when we start talking about um, the responsible use of technology, as we discussed earlier, it really does come down to a couple of core elements. What is the purpose of what we're trying to build and why? How does that help the world, the people within the world, or the organisations that are protecting their people or assets? And then when, uh, you know, Milestone being a very open company means we invite technology, uh, you know, builders to, to develop new ideas, new ways of actually uh, supporting either a business, supporting uh, general prote protection of people, uh, public safety, all of these types of arenas. And when they're doing that, we again really validate what the purpose of that is. What are we trying to achieve? And you know, I'd encourage anybody to go and look at some of the amazing technologies that are built that really help law enforcement agencies with enormous, you know, drug trafficking problems, uh, customs, and uh, you know, major, major. Um, you know, investigation units and, and things like this. There's a huge amount of collateral on the internet that, that really can help you see why these technologies are so relevant and, and, and so important to general public safety. But then when we start moving into, you know, other arenas, it may be as simple as, uh, you know, when, we, when you walk into the store, perhaps there was some metadata helping uh, supplier organizations understand how quickly stock is moving off shelves to make sure they keep that particular geography uh, you know, up to date and full. So when you walk in, there is actually something there that you want to buy on the shelf. So you know, these things have nothing to do with people, but again, it's about understanding what those use cases are early in the development process. So when they're building these integrations and these these products, which are really going to help both businesses and people uh, to to offer a better service, a safer environment, or a more seamless uh, or a more seamless experience. These are all the different things that we investigate along the way that try and, I guess, help everybody understand, are we using this technology responsibly? And then it comes down to the organization deploying it. Do they have the best interests of, of the people in mind, the business in mind, and, and are those things aligned? So this is really a responsibility of all of us. It's not something that one particular organization can take on. It's something that the, you know, the, the video industry as a whole uh, really needs to own because it is definitely uh, an evolving landscape that's always going to continue to change and will always challenge that ethical boundary, right? So when new technology comes along, there's always fear around it. I recently went and looked at a new car. I got in the car. And I, I, I sat down and I said, it feels like a car. And then you look into the specifications of it. It's monitoring literally everything I'm doing in there. It's pretty yeah. easy to figure out what the car is from this. But, you know, it wants to self-drive. But if I fall asleep, it's going to get upset with me. Yeah. How does it know it? It's storing metadata about me. It's got a video camera pointing at me. It's not actually recording a video image. It's no. recording metadata to say, this guy's hands are off the wheel, he's fallen asleep, hasn't moved for this amount of time, I need to sound some alerts. It is a safety feature. Now, the interesting thing here is it's easy to misconstrue that about, uh, you know, what is the purpose of that? The purpose is not for um, car company A to, to, to take video of me while I sleep at the wheel. It's to understand how can I protect this person while I provide an environment if, of 
of the car driving itself down the road, how can I uh, provide a, a way to make sure this person remains safe, is alert in case of any major incident or anything that happens in front that the car doesn't necessarily react to. It's the same thing when it comes to uh, video security. Video security is here to help. It's here to understand ways of uh, creating operational efficiency, uh, personal safety, uh, building protection, building safety, all of these different elements that are really critical to life these days. And in the same way as, you know, windows are important to a building, uh, you know, the glass matters, without it we get the breeze through, uh, where video is really in the same place. It, it, it's protecting or creating that environment of, of comfort, of safety and of operational efficiency for a lot of the, the places that you and I visit today. Yeah, and I think in closing this, because we're getting close to our time limit, I think it's really important to point out, to use your example, Jordan, you know, car manufacturer A may decide that they're going to use an iris scan where you look in the rear vision mirror, it scans your iris, and that's how it knows that that's you and it's going to start the car. People seem to worry about the law of unintended consequences, which is that in itself is not an innocuous use of biometrics, but what could someone potentially do with that data five years down the track? The reality is, as we understand it right now, and Fraser, correct me if I'm wrong, nothing. There's nothing that they can do with that. It's, you know, car manufacturer A is going to do it slightly differently to car manufacturer B, which is going to do it slightly differently to car manufacturer C. Everyone has their own proprietary use for it, and it doesn't really, it can't, you pointed this out before, it can't be reverse engineered. No. This stuff can't be used to act nefariously against people. There will always be people seeking ways to try and do it, but it's not the way the systems are designed, correct? Yeah, absolutely correct. Can't even, uh, I can't even sort of go any further than that. You're absolutely spot on. You can't reverse engineer this stuff, or not easily. Yeah. I, th I think beyond that, you know, it's important to understand that in 99% of cases, these things are stored in silo. Yeah. So, you know, where, th where that threat is, it's stored in that environment. It's not, it's not something that's out there on the internet for the world to see. And more importantly, even if, if that ever accidentally did happen, it comes down to that security policy and the way we use that data, people need to be able to understand it, which again is, is so varying from company to company that I think that also really limits the use case of that in the future. So if you talk about the company, uh, you know, car manufacturer A, it's highly likely that they will build in the appropriate security protocols to say, this iris scan is stored where? On this vehicle. Yep. Not in, not in a, a server farm somewhere that's being shared amongst uh, everywhere else. Why? Because that's how we make people feel safe and secure about the sharing of that data. The, the difference to that will be only if some car manufacturer A decides that they want to do, let's say, a car sharing scheme. So you can walk up to any car and open the car. Or well, that then is data in cloud somewhere along the line. Yep. Um, yeah, maybe. But I, I just can't see people doing that or using it. And again, it would be unique to that particular car manufacturer for instance or if some wonderful hollywood producer decides they're going to make a spy movie where <laughs> some dude breaks into the car and hacks the iris scan to then open the suspect's iphone and right. get access to their bank account and drain all of their money which is all complete bs but that's what happens ladies and gentlemen thank you very much for joining us jordan thank you for joining us on the podcast no problem sean thank you fraser thank you very much for being our guest no, thanks for your time and uh, if you enjoyed this podcast or you would like more like it, you can find a ton of them in the ASIAL Security Insider series. You'll find them on Blurberry, Google, iTunes, Spotify, Android Play, and uh, all the other great places where you find podcasts. And we look forward to you joining us again next time. 